Hi everybody. I hope that you are well. I trust that you have had a good week. I know that this continues to be a difficult time for us, not just in terms of our world, but many of us are facing challenges in our own personal lives and in the life of our family. And I just want to assure you again that I love you, I miss you, I'm thinking about you and praying for you. And if I or if anyone else in the church can help you in any way, please don't hesitate to shout. Somebody asked me this week whether we were just going to look at one verse from First Peter today, seeing as we only looked at two verses last time. I won't tell you who asked that, but it was Colin. I told him that it was even better than that, and that this week we would only look at one sentence from the book of First Peter. You'll remember, though, that verses 3 to 12 of First Peter chapter 1 are just one long sentence in the Greek language. This is the section of the book that we're going to try and memorize as a congregation over the next few weeks. And it really is a marvelous passage. You may already have watched today's memory video, but let me read it to you again. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 12. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. And this is God's word. Verses 3 to 12 of First Peter chapter 1 are a doxology, or hymn. Peter begins, Blessed be God, which was an expression that was well known to Jewish people from synagogue worship. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God. And Peter uses this traditional formula and makes it distinctively Christian by identifying God as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom he gives praise. It's so interesting if you were going to write to a group of people who were suffering, as Peter's readers were, 
how would you begin? I know one of the first things I would say would be, I'm so sorry to hear about what you're going through at the moment. But Peter doesn't do that. He begins by praising God. Peter then is modelling something that we looked at a few weeks ago in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Remember that Paul urged us to rejoice in the Lord so that the peace of God would guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. One of the main ways in which we can get through this crisis is by focusing our attention on God. And 1 Peter chapter 1 then is a theological hymn of praise that can literally keep us alive. Peter's prayer, his hymn, his doxology, is something on which we can build our lives and something on which we can build our hope. That's one of the main themes in this hymn, the theme of hope. At the moment, our world is desperately in need of hope. People, you see, simply cannot survive without hope. This week, I heard about an education department in America that, in the days when kids were still going to school, had a system whereby they sent teachers to visit pupils in hospital to help keep them up to date on any work they may have missed. One day, one of these teachers was contacted by a class teacher. She said, one of my pupils is in hospital and we're studying nouns and adverbs in class I'd be grateful if you could go and visit him and help him understand them so he doesn't fall too far behind. And so the remedial teacher took the child's name and the hospital name and the room number and off she went. When she went into the hospital room, she was very distressed to find that this boy had been badly burned and was in a lot of pain and was actually very unwell. Nobody had warned her. And she was so upset that she stumbled over her opening words. I've been sent by your school to help with nouns and adverbs. And she did a fairly short lesson with the boy and then left, feeling really bad and thinking that she hadn't really accomplished much. The next day, she got a phone call from one of the nurses at the hospital who asked her, what did you do to that boy? And the teacher thought she must have said something wrong, that her own shock and distress must have upset this boy. And she started to apologise, but the nurse said, No, you don't understand. We've been worried about this boy. But ever since yesterday, his whole attitude has changed. He's fighting back. He's responding to treatment. A few days later, this little boy, well on his way to recovery, told the nurse that everything had changed the day the teacher arrived. Her visit had given him hope. He expressed it this way. They wouldn't send a teacher to work on nouns and adverbs with a dying boy, would they? Everybody needs hope in order to survive. Our world this morning desperately needs hope. And yet it's so interesting that our modern secular 21st century society is the least equipped of any generation when it comes to any real sense of hope. I was watching a YouTube lecture by Timothy Keller this past week. You may have heard of him. I think I might have mentioned his name once or twice before. But in this lecture, he gives a historical overview of the rise and fall of hope in the modern world. He points out that for most of modern history, people have had a fairly optimistic view of the future. Things are going to get better and better. 
People point to the huge leaps that we've made in our knowledge of the universe and the huge leaps that we've made in technology. But there are two major problems that seriously undermine Western secular hope. The first is the problem of human nature. People assumed that if humanity's knowledge increased, then life would get better, but we've seen the very opposite of that. No matter what technology we invent, people find a way to use it for evil. No matter what new thing we discover, people find a way to exploit it. And a second problem that destroys modern hope is the problem of oblivion. Ours is the first society that has systematically tried to uproot any idea of God and the afterlife. According to modern society, there is no pattern or purpose to our existence. We're just the product of accidental, impersonal forces, and one day the sun will die and everything will burn up. It's very difficult then to maintain a sense of hope. Brian Greene is a secular author, and in one of his books he mentions a scene from the movie Annie Hall, where nine-year-old Alvy Singer discovers that eventually the universe will break down and all human civilization will be destroyed in the death of the sun. And in the light of this discovery, he refuses to do his homework that night. And Brian Greene says, But if the immediate demise of humanity would render life meaningless then the same should be true even if the end is far off. We hope that what we do will live on in our work or maybe in the lives of our children. But the reality is that in the end, whether you live a life of goodness or cruelty will make no difference at all. In one of his articles, C.S. Lewis, who was of course a Christian, pointed out the logical conclusion of removing God from our lives. He said, if nature is all that exists, in other words, if there is no God and no life of some quite different sort somewhere, then all stories will end in the same way, in a universe from which all life is banished without possibility of return. It will have been an accidental flicker, and there will be no one even to remember it. Now, I don't know if people necessarily think out the logical conclusions of their unbelief or even live their lives in a way that is consistent with their unbelief. But modern secular society really doesn't have any basis for hope in a time of pandemic. However, in the passage that we've just read, the Apostle Peter tells us that as Christians, we have a great hope. We have a living hope in contrast to the dead hope of the world. And Peter tells us that this living hope is reasonable, comprehensive, realistic, and effective. Let's have a look. Firstly, Peter says that this living hope is a reasonable hope. It's a rational hope because it's based on a historical event. Verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Besides the documents of the New Testament that have come down to us from ancient times, we have a number of other documents from the ancient world. One of these is a letter written around 200 AD. It was a letter written by an Egyptian lady to a couple whose son has just died. This lady herself has experienced grief in her own life, 
And so she now writes this letter to this couple to try and bring comfort to them. And this is what she writes. Irene, to Tyanophorus and Philo, good comfort. I am as sorry and weep over the departed one as I wept for Didymus, and all things whatsoever were fitting I have done. But nevertheless, against such things one can do nothing. Therefore comfort ye one another. That's the best comfort that Irene can give. But we have to ask ourselves, how is that comforting? Against such things one can do nothing, therefore comfort ye one another. Robert Greene Ingersoll was an American writer and orator who was also known as the great agnostic of the 19th century. He died in 1899. He once said these words at the graveside of his friend's child. They who stand with breaking hearts around this little grave need have no fear. The larger and nobler faith in all that is and is to be tells us that death, even at its worst, is only perfect rest. The dead do not suffer. But as one writer points out, it makes little sense to point to a state in which we are stripped of all love and everything that gives meaning in life and tell people that they need not fear that. In contrast to the words of Irene and Robert Ingersoll, listen to God's words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So much of our world's hope at the moment is based on wishful thinking, but our hope as Christians is based on historical and verifiable fact. Jesus died and rose again, and in doing that proved himself to be God, who has the power to ensure that we too will rise again. We don't have time this morning to look at the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, but it is out there. I'd point you to books like Who Moved the Stone by Frank Morrison, a former agnostic, or The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, a former agnostic. Uh, so many people have looked at the actual evidence. It's probably important to remember that at first Peter himself didn't believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead. The Bible tells us how on that first Easter Sunday, the women find the tomb empty, they see the resurrected Lord Jesus, they go running back to tell the disciples, and Luke tells us that they did not believe the woman because their words seemed to them like nonsense. But Peter and the other disciples then saw the resurrected Lord Jesus for themselves. It's the only thing that explains the remarkable change in these men. From hiding in an upper room with the doors locked, terrified they'll be arrested and killed, to a few weeks later out on the streets of Jerusalem telling everyone that Jesus is alive. A belief for which every one of them, except John on the island of Patmos, died a martyr's death. Was Jesus alive? They bet their lives on it. In his second letter to these Christians, Peter writes, we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty.
You see, you just cannot account for the existence and growth of the Christian faith without the resurrection. How in the world did Jewish men and women, who had had it drilled into them for 2,000 years that there was only one God, ever start to worship Jesus as God? If you deny the resurrection, you have to come up with a viable alternative to the rise of Christianity in the world, and nobody has. How do you account for the fact that today we call our children Peter and Paul and John, but call our dogs Caesar and Nero? Jean-Paul Sartre was an atheistic philosopher who died in 1980, and about a month before he died, he wrote these words to a friend. I know I shall die in hope, but that hope needs a foundation. And he's right. The reason we look forward with such confidence is because we look back with confidence to the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. As Christians, we have a reasonable hope. Secondly, this living hope is a comprehensive hope. It includes the past, the present, and the future. We'll look at each of these in turn. might take some time, but don't worry, the other points are a bit shorter. Firstly, this comprehensive hope encompasses the past. Peter says, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Notice that Peter emphasizes God's unmerited favor in his great mercy. There's nothing that we've done to deserve this. He has given us, again, nothing that we have done. It's a gift. And this gift is new birth. This, of course, was the picture that Jesus used in John chapter 3 when he said to Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. To which Nicodemus replied, How can someone be born when they're old? Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. It's the picture that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he literally says, If anyone is in Christ, new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. It's an amazing concept. I heard about a missionary lady called Jan, who was sat in a hotel whirlpool after a conference with a couple of friends, and two young teenage girls got into the pool with her. And one of the girls, called Brittany, was busy telling her friend about a Wiccan party she was going to attend that evening. And Jan's hair stood on end, and she was about to tell this girl that the Wiccans were evil and dangerous, and white magic wasn't any different from black magic, and that she should stay away as far as possible from it. But she decided just to listen for a bit, and so she said to Brittany, It sounds like you're really excited about this. And that's all the encouragement Brittany needed. She launched into a five-minute explanation as to why she was attracted to neo-pagan rituals. The fact was that she'd had a really traumatic time in high school, and the Wiccans were the only ones who'd accepted her. And towards the end of her explanation, she said, You know, I've been through so much rubbish in my life that I'll probably be in therapy for the rest of my life. And Jan said to her, it's probably hard for you to even imagine a future where you'd be free from all the pain you've gone through. And Jan says that what happened next completely floored her. 
with a film of tears starting to form in her eyes, and with complete sincerity in her voice, Brittany said, Sometimes I wish I could be born all over again. I'd really like to start over from scratch. And after a long pause, one of Jan's friends asked Brittany if she really would like to be born again. And Brittany replied, yes, I really would. And so the two ladies led Brittany into a relationship with Jesus. That's what God offers us, an opportunity to start all over again. Some of us have done that in the past, but it could happen for you this morning if it hasn't taken place already. John writes to us in that same chapter, John chapter 3 and verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Secondly, this comprehensive hope encompasses the future. Verse 4, He's given us new birth into a living hope and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. Peter had been there for the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus had said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our inheritance can't decay with age, or be marred by sin, or used up, or lose its glory or joy. It is death-proof, sin-proof, and time-proof. When some of Peter's Jewish readers heard the word inheritance, they may have thought in terms of the land of Israel, the land that God had promised the Israelites would be their inheritance. But it's so interesting, when the people enter the land of Canaan and they're parceling out sections of the land, the Levites, the priests, don't get their own land. And it says this in Deuteronomy chapter 18, the Levitical priests, indeed the whole tribe of Levi, are to have no allotment or inheritance with Israel. They shall have no inheritance among their fellow Israelites, for the Lord is their inheritance, as he promised them. The reason our inheritance can never perish, spoil or fade is because God himself is our inheritance. Whatever else we may lose during this coronavirus, our jobs, our savings, our pensions, our health, our family members, even our lives, our inheritance is secure. Whatever happens, we will be at home with God forever. And that home itself will be magnificent. Everything bad will come untrue. One writer puts it this way, Christianity offers a restoration of life. The resurrection of our body means that we don't merely receive a consolation for the life we've lost, but a restoration of it. We get our bodies back. Indeed, we get the bodies we never had but wished we had, and one beyond our greatest imaginings. We get our lives back. Indeed, we get the life we longed for but never had. 
It's all because the Christian hope is not just an ethereal, disembodied existence, but one in which the body and soul are finally perfectly integrated, one in which we dance, sing, hug, work and play. The Christian doctrine of the resurrection is then a reversal of death's seeming irreversibility. And thirdly, our comprehensive hope encompasses the present. Verse 5. An inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter says here that not only is our inheritance kept in heaven for us, but that we are kept for our inheritance. We are shielded by God's power. The word that Peter uses here is a military term. It means to be guarded, and it includes both the idea of being protected from attack and being kept from escaping. In other words, as we've seen a couple of times in recent weeks, God is holding on to us in the present. John chapter 10, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. As one writer puts it, it would be small comfort to know that nothing could destroy our heavenly inheritance if we could lose it at last. The wonder of our hope is that the same power of God that keeps our inheritance also keeps us. This hope keeps us in the present until our salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. You notice then the comprehensiveness of this hope. I have been saved in the past through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. I am being saved in the present through God shielding me and sanctifying me through his Holy Spirit. And I will be finally saved in the future when Jesus returns. We have a comprehensive hope. Thirdly, not only do we have a reasonable hope and a comprehensive hope, but we have a realistic hope. Verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. There's so much that we could say about this. In fact, next week we're going to come back to this verse again because it's so important in this time. I don't know how many of you have read the book Pollyanna by Eleanor Porter, originally published in 1913. I'd often heard people refer to being a Pollyanna in a negative sense or having a Pollyanna-ish outlook, but I didn't know what they meant until I read the book to my daughter several years ago. Uh, Pollyanna is a little girl whose philosophy of life centres on what she calls the glad game. The game consists of finding something to be glad about in every situation, no matter how bleak it might be. So, for example, her aunt puts her in a stuffy attic room without carpets or pictures, and Pollyanna is so glad because of the beautiful view she has from the high window. When her aunt punishes her for being late for dinner by sentencing her to a meal of bread and milk in the kitchen with the servant Nancy, 
Pollyanna is glad and thanks her rapturously because she likes bread and milk and she likes Nancy. And so it goes on and on throughout the book. It's quite amusing and entertaining for a few chapters, but near the end you just want to strangle her. The Christian hope is no Pollyanna-ish denial of life. Peter's realistic here. He knows that these Christians are suffering grief. The word he uses for grief here is one that is used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. They are suffering agony. They're being mocked and falsely accused and abused. And he knows that they're soon going to be facing death for their faith. Peter himself has been promised by Jesus, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And indeed, around AD 64, Peter was crucified for his faith by the Emperor Nero. So Peter is being realistic here. Both the words suffer grief and the words greatly rejoice are in the present tense. Peter doesn't say, you used to rejoice, but now you're in pain. Equally, he doesn't say, because you're rejoicing, you're not really in pain. He can hold the two together. It's possible to rejoice even while we're in pain. One of my favourite comic books when I was growing up was Hergé's series, Tintin. I'm sure some of you remember those books or have them on your shelves. One of the books in the series is called The Blue Lantern, which he published in 1934. The plot's too complex to explain in detail. But at the end of the book, when Tintin has to leave China... Tintin's friend, Chang, is adopted by a family. And as they sat around the family table, Chang's new mother asks him why he is crying. And Chang says to her, There is a rainbow in my heart, venerable lady. I weep because Tintin is going, but the sun shines because I have a new mother and father. Although I read that book when I was about ten years old, that little phrase and image has always stuck with me, how there can be both tears and sunshine in our hearts at the same time, which produce a rainbow. Ours is a realistic hope this morning. In this pandemic, we don't engage in denialism or wishful thinking. We're allowed to feel sadness and sorrow, even while we rejoice in a sure and certain hope. Finally, not only is our living hope a reasonable hope, a comprehensive hope, a realistic hope, it is also an effective hope. It changes things in the present. Verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Our Christian hope is an effective one because it produces love and joy, right here and right now. Peter had, of course, seen Jesus. He'd heard him say, follow me. He'd watched Jesus feed the multitudes, heal the sick, raise the dead. He'd walked with Jesus all through Israel, even out onto the Sea of Galilee. And it's so moving to Peter that these folk had not seen Jesus and yet believed in him and loved him. 
and what is true of them is true of us. And because of that, we're blessed this morning. Do you remember Jesus saying to Thomas after his resurrection, Because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And not only are we filled with love, we can be filled with joy, even in the most difficult circumstances. You see, if Jesus is our inheritance, we don't have to fear if things are taken from us, our jobs, our homes, our savings, our income, even our lives. We can face anything with confidence. In his book, King's Cross, Tim Keller describes how hope made a difference in his own personal life. Let me read to you what he says. The only time I ever faced death personally was when I had thyroid cancer. From the beginning, the doctors told me it was treatable. Still, when I was going under anesthesia for the surgery, I wondered what would happen. You may be curious about what passage from the Bible came to my mind. True confession. What I thought of was a passage from Lord of the Rings. It comes near the end of the third book, when evil and darkness seem overwhelming. Here's what Tolkien tells us about the thoughts of Sam Gamgee, one of the heroes. Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. His song in the tower had been defiance rather than hope, for then he was thinking of himself. Now for a moment his own fate ceased to trouble him. Putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep, untroubled sleep. I remember thinking at that moment, it's really true. Because of Jesus' death, evil is a passing thing, a shadow. There is light and high beauty forever beyond its reach, because evil fell into the heart of Jesus. The only darkness that could have destroyed us forever fell into his heart. It didn't matter what happened in surgery. It was going to be all right. And it is going to be all right. We have a great hope this morning. A hope that is reasonable because it is based on the reality of Jesus' resurrection. One that is comprehensive, encompassing our past, present and future. One that is realistic in that it recognises grief even in rejoicing. And effective. It changes our lives here and now. We're in an incredibly privileged position, as Peter points out in the final verses, which we've run out of time to read now. But he says that the prophets longed to comprehend these things, that we understand things that Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel longed to know and understand, and that even angels long to look into these things. The angels who stand in God's presence look at us and ask each other, what must it be like to be recipients of such love? We're heading out into another week, a week where Level 3 lockdown begins, where our teachers and some students are returning to school, our infection rate and death rate are increasing, 
Yes, we do need to be careful, but we can enter this week with the full assurance of hope. Our hope is anchored in the past. Jesus rose. Our hope remains in the present. Jesus lives. Our hope is completed in the future. Jesus is coming. Amen.